This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We'll read one verse, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is a wonderful thing. We all desire to have and enjoy peace. It is wonderful when there's peace in a home. Peace between the husband and wife, peace between the parents and children, and peace between the siblings. It's wonderful too when there's peace in society, peace between various groups, so that the citizens of the country work in harmony together. It's wonderful also when there's peace between nations, so that nations do not take arms up against one another in war. It's wonderful too when there's peace in a church, so that members love one another, live in harmony with one another, and do the work of the Lord with one mind. And yet, peace is difficult to attain. A lack of peace in the home leads to hatred between family members, squabbling, domestic violence, and even divorce. A lack of peace in society leads to protests and violence in the streets and riots and even murder. A lack of peace between the nations leads to war and terrible bloodshed. A lack of peace in the church leads to bitterness and even schism or division with an inability to serve the Lord with one heart and mind. But the speech this evening concerns a much more fundamental and much more important peace, peace that hardly any ever think about. There's all kinds of talk about peace in the world, the end of war, peace among peoples of the world, But there's very little talk, if any talk at all, about the subject of our speech this evening, which is peace with God. Peace with God. And Paul writes about peace with God in the verse we read, Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. People sometimes think about peace with God only on their deathbed. People will ask the question to someone who's dying, have you made your peace with God? And that's, of course, an important question to ask someone who is dying because that person is soon going to face God. But peace with God is more important than simply to wait until one is dying 
We want to have peace with God long before we come to be on our deathbed. To live happily in this world requires that we have peace with God now, in this life, for many years before we come to die. We begin, therefore, with God, the one with whom we should want to have peace. Who is God? God is, first, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and almighty creator. He is your creator and my creator. He made you, and you are in his hand. God is also the almighty, sovereign, and wise ruler of all things. He directs all things. He directs even your life in this world toward the goal that he has determined before the foundation of the world. And God is also the righteous and holy judge. He determines right and wrong. He tells us what right and wrong are in his law. As the judge, he evaluates and judges all of your thoughts, all of your words, and all of your deeds. He's either justifying you or he is condemning you for your thoughts, words, and deeds. On the last day, God the judge will judge you personally and will sentence you either to everlasting life in heaven to be with him or he will cast you away from himself into everlasting punishment in hell. This is the one the Almighty Creator, the Sovereign Ruler, and the just and righteous and holy Judge. This is the one with whom we must have peace. This is the one that Paul says Christians have peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, says Paul to the Christians in Rome, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, with this God, with the creator and ruler and judge. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this God the God of peace. He's the God of peace. We must have peace with the God of peace. Philippians 4 verse 9 says, and the God of peace shall be with you. God is called the God of peace first because God dwells in his own perfect being in perfect peace. Think about God for a moment. Don't think about yourself. Don't think about the creation that God made. Think about God as he is within himself. God is, as we've seen before in other lectures, God is the triune God, the Trinity. Within God's being, there are three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And the relationship between those three persons is a relationship of perfect peace. There's unity in God. There's fellowship in God. There's communion in God. There's harmony in God. God is the God who enjoys within his own being perfect peace. There is no disruption to God's perfect peace. There is no disagreement in God between the three persons of the Trinity, for example. Never does the Father contradict the Son. Never does the Son squabble with the Father. Never does the Spirit contend with the Father or the Son. God is the God of peace. And the second reason why God is called the God of peace is because God creates peace. He, he is peace. He is peace within his own being, and he also creates peace. He creates peace, does the God of peace, where formerly there were disharmony, disunity, and enmity or hatred. When God creates peace, he makes the creature man and woman, he makes the creature experience and taste his own peace. When God creates peace, he brings the creature, man and woman, into a harmonious relationship with himself, so that, in a creaturely way, the man or the woman who has peace with God tastes something of God's peace. When God creates peace, he restores peace to a home where a man and woman live who are at peace with God. There's peace in their marriage and there's peace in their home and there's peace between the parents and the children and there's peace among the siblings. In society, God creates peace. Between nations, God creates peace. And in the church, God creates peace. That, therefore, is the meaning of Paul's words, we have peace with God. Here are Roman Christians in the first century. Paul writes to them and says, we have peace with God. God, which means we are in a harmonious relationship with God. Which means that we are in a state in which we know and love God, and which he knows and loves us. We are in fellowship or communion with God. We experience that fellowship or communion with God as something delightful. We know that God has forgiven our sins, that God is nothing against us because we have peace with him. And we have nothing against him either because we have been reconciled to him. God is for us. We are devoted to him in love. That's what it means to have peace with God. And Christians 
And only Christians experience this peace with God. Paul writes, Romans 5 verse 1, We have peace with God. And who are the people to whom he writes? Christians. They have peace with God, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in Christ, have peace with God. And we have this peace already. He does not write, therefore being justified by faith, we shall have in the future peace with God, but we have present tense right now peace with God. We have a foretaste. We have a beginning of that peace with God. We will enjoy the fullness of that peace with God in heavenly glory forever. And that peace with God flows out of faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That peace is a fruit of justification. Therefore, being justified, or because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ, and the one who is not justified, the unbelieving sinner, therefore, he or she does not have peace with God. Now, peace, of course, is something wonderful, wonderful to have peace with God. But the Bible warns us that peace does not exist between mankind and God. The majority of the people in the world are not at peace with God, and God is not at peace with them. Instead, there's war. There's war. Man is at war with God. God is at war with man. There's a bilateral war, therefore. Hostilities have been declared on both sides. Nevertheless, only from one direction is this war a just war. We speak of just wars, a war which is justifiable. Man's war against God is an unjust war. God's war against man is a just war. Because man is a sinner, therefore his war is an unjust war. Because God is just and holy, his war against man is a just war. Isaiah 57 verse 21 says this, There is no peace, no peace, saith the Lord to the wicked. In Romans 5 verse 10, Paul writes of a time, quote, When we were enemies. We were enemies, says Paul. To these people who, who have peace with God, he says, there was a time in the past 
when we were enemies. Romans 8, verse 7, Paul writes, The carnal mind, that is the mind of the sinful flesh of man, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity being hostility or hatred. In Colossians 3.21, Paul writes this, You were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. So here's this bilateral war. Man is at war with God. God is at war with man. Man's attitude to God is one of hostility. Hostility. In his rebellion against God, he is at war with God. He hates God. He refuses to obey God. And that enmity or war against God is obvious from man's behavior. He will not obey God's commandments. He seeks to overthrow God's laws. He seeks to set up his own laws which please him. That enmity is also obvious from our own hearts. When you feel within your heart a thought rising up against God, resentment or anger or bitterness against God, and we all feel that from time to time, that's an example of your personal warfare against God. When out of selfishness or pride or greed or some other evil motive you do not obey God, you are showing that you are at war with God. That's the one side of the war. Man's war against God. God's war against man shows itself in God's wrath against man. Man has rebelled against God. God responds to that rebellion with wrath or anger. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God is angry with man. He hates man's sinful thoughts. He detests man's evil words. He is angry with man because of man's wicked deeds. He judges man to be worthy of punishment, man to be worthy of death. And thus he kills man. Death in this world is God's punishment of man for sin. And ultimately, God's wrath is seen in his casting man, his enemy, into hell. So we see this war. On the one hand, we have the war of man against God, which is an unjust and wicked war. On the other hand, we have God's war against man, which is a just and a holy war. Man, of course, is wicked and foolish in his war against God. 
He's wicked because he is waging war against the good and the holy and the righteous God. And what has God done to justify man's wicked rebellion and hostility against him? God has been good. Only good. Always good. It's also foolish. For if you choose an opponent to challenge in warfare, if you're wise, you choose one you can defeat. Man challenges the Almighty. Man challenges the sovereign and perfectly wise God. Man challenges his creator, his ruler, and his judge. Does man really believe that he can defeat God in war? What foolishness! And yet all men by nature are waging a war against God which they can never win. Isaiah 45 verse 9 Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. The psalmist says in Psalm 2 verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? God's response to man's attempt at war against him is to laugh. Psalm 2, 4 and 5, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. He laugh and then he will punish those who have declared war against him. When then and how did this war begin? When did man, God's creature, enter into warfare against God? It began some 6,000 years ago at the beginning of human history. History has seen many long wars. But this war is the longest of all wars. And this war is still happening today. And this war, man's war against God, will only end when Jesus Christ returns on the last day to destroy his enemies and to save his church. And then the judgment will come. And God's enemies will be utterly, publicly defeated. And the question is to us, of course, are you this evening at war with God or are you at peace with him? Are you living in rebellion against God or have you peace with him? Are you one, as is described in verse 1, are you one who, being justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Where will you stand on the last day when Christ returns? Will you stand with him because you have peace with God? Or will you stand against him because you're an enemy of God? If you have not believed in Jesus Christ by that time, you will be still declared an enemy of God and will be destroyed with God's enemies. When God created man, Adam and Eve, in the beginning, man was at peace 
with God. The war had not begun. Man was in God's image. Man lived in a harmonious relationship with his creator. Adam loved God, delighted in God, served him gladly, served him perfectly. And God loved Adam, communed with him, and walked with him in the garden. You see that in Genesis chapter 3. God, however, had an enemy. There was an enemy prior to man's warfare. And that enemy was the devil, or Satan. And the devil was the one who introduced the idea of war to Adam and Eve. We know the history. First the devil tempted Eve, and she ate of the forbidden fruit, which was an act of war on her part. Then Eve persuaded her husband Adam also to eat the forbidden fruit, which was another act of war by Eve and an act of war by Adam. And by disobeying God, Adam and Eve chose to enter into an alliance with God's enemy, the devil, and they chose to become God's enemies. And thus they threw away the peace that they enjoyed with God, choosing instead enmity against God. And the result was that God, that Adam declared war against God, and God declared war against Adam, and all of Adam's descendants continue in that long, bitter, wicked, and foolish war against God. And you and I, because we are sons and daughters of Adam, are born into this world at war with God. As sinners, as totally depraved sinners. And if God had not intervened, we would still be the enemies of God, still engaged in a foolish and fruitless and wicked war against God. And if you're an unbeliever this evening, you are still an enemy of God. You're still at war against God. You mightn't think that about yourself, but that's what the Bible says about you. Because verse 1 says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which means if you do not have faith, you do not have peace with God, and therefore you are at war with God. And the Bible then commands you to turn from your sins, repent, surrender before God, throw down your weapons, and sue God for mercy, and to seek mercy in Jesus Christ, in order to find peace with God. So we have in the garden a terrible thing happens. Adam and Eve, who were God's friends, declare war against God. God in turn declares war upon them in wrath against them. You would expect, therefore, the Bible to finish, really, with Genesis 3. Adam declares war against God. God declares war against Adam. Adam is destroyed. The end. But God had a plan 
to recreate peace and to end the war. God did not have to do this, of course, because justice was on God's side. God could justly have simply destroyed Adam and Eve on the spot. Instead, he revealed his mercy. And God revealed his plan of peace to Adam and Eve, and even to the devil who was there at the time. He revealed his plan of peace in Genesis 3, verse 15. Listen carefully to Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We want to unpack for a few moments that verse, because that verse really is a declaration of peace. And it's also a declaration of war. It's a declaration of war against the devil. It's a declaration of peace for Adam and Eve and all of God's people. Notice a few important points in that verse. First, he speaks to the devil. God, in this verse, speaks to the devil. And that's interesting. Quote, I will put enmity between thee, the devil, thee is the devil, and the woman. The woman is Eve. Second, he speaks of two seeds. Notice that in the verse as well. He refers to thy seed, which is the devil's seed. He's speaking to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed, the devil's seed, and her seed, the woman's seed. Eve's seed. And a seed is an offspring or a descendant, or a child, or here, a son. The seed is male, masculine. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Third, he speaks of putting enmity between various parties. Enmity is opposition, or hostility, or hatred, or even warfare. God says, I will put enmity between two different parties. I will put enmity, says God, between thee, between the devil and the woman. Between thee and the woman. Enmity between the devil and Eve. And I will put enmity between thy seed, the devil's seed the devil's offspring, and her seed, Eve's seed, Eve's offspring. In other words, I will create peace by putting enmity between these two parties. So God creates peace by declaring war. And that's interesting. We'll see what that means in a moment. Fourth, this enmity will lead to a twofold bruising or injury. Notice that too in the verse. It, which is the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy, which is the devil's, head. 
So whoever this seed is going to be, we'll find out who that is in a moment. Whoever the seed is, he, the seed of the woman, will bruise or crush the devil's head. And that injury, that blow to the head, will be fatal to the devil. It will destroy him. On the other hand, thou, the devil, thou shalt bruise his, the seed of the woman's, heel. Satan will crush the seed's heel. The heel, of course, is the end of your foot. This blow, this injury to the heel will not be fatal. It's a heel injury, not a head injury. If you get a head injury, that's much more serious than if you get a heel injury. And remember, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, that the devil is a serpent or a snake. And so the imagery is very interesting here. Think of a man walking in the woods. He encounters a snake as he's walking in the woods. The snake jumps up to bite the man on the heel, thus injuring him. At the same time, the man tramples the head of the snake, killing it. These two injuries, therefore, shall occur at the same time. One injury to the head, fatal. The other injury to the heel, not fatal. Here, then, is how God is going to create peace. He will, first of all, create war between the devil and the woman and the woman's people. The devil will be at war with Eve and with Eve's children. That will end, of course, the wicked alliance between God's people and Satan. Remember, Adam and Eve had just entered into an alliance or a friendship with the devil. They had taken the devil's side against God, had declared war against God, and God says, I will overturn that. I will put enmity between thee, the devil, and the woman, between the devil's seed and the woman's seed. That will end the wicked alliance, therefore, between God's people and Satan. And then God will send a seed, in the future, a seed, who will crush Satan's head. While at the same time, Satan will injure the heel of the seeds of the woman, of the the heel of the seed of the woman. So we have these two injuries happening at the same time. Satan will have his head crushed, and the seed of the woman shall have his heel bruised, and the result shall be peace. Peace between God's people and himself, and war between the devil and God's people. That was the first promise of salvation 
in the Bible. Way back in Genesis 3, just after the fall. And the Bible identifies who this seed of the woman is. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in flesh, is the seed of the woman. And Paul tells us that in Galatians 3.16. Quote, And to thy seed, which is Christ. Of course. Of course it's Christ. Where did that confrontation between the devil and Christ take place? Where did Christ bruise the head of the devil? Where did Satan bruise Christ's heel? And the answer is the cross. The cross. On the cross, Jesus was injured and even died, but he was not destroyed. His heel was bruised. He rose again from the dead in the resurrection. On the cross, Jesus crushed the devil, crushed his head, fatally wounded him, and destroyed him. The, te the New Testament teaches us this. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Through death, he, Jesus, might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus destroyed the devil by taking away from him the only power that the devil has, which is the power that the devil has, sin. Without sin, the devil has no power over men. Without sin, the devil cannot bring men into war against God. Without sin, the devil cannot enslave men. If sin is removed, the devil is destroyed. If sin is removed, war between man and God can come to an end. Peace is restored. But how then is this sin going to be removed? How does Jesus Christ destroy the power of sin? by satisfying the justice of God. The justice of God demands the death of the sinner. But God loves the sinner. God loves his people. And God desires to be at peace with his people. And therefore the death of Christ is the penalty paid to the justice of God to satisfy God's justice. The penalty for sin fell upon another, upon a substitute, upon a willing substitute, who is Jesus Christ. Here then is how the war between God and man is resolved. Here is how God brings about peace. The sin that separates God and man is removed. 
because Jesus suffers the penalty that man's sin deserved, namely death. The righteousness that man requires to be in a harmonious relationship with God is restored because Jesus Christ obeys God perfectly in man's place. Then God gives that righteousness that Jesus has worked to the sinner. He gives that righteousness to the sinner who believes in Jesus. On the basis of what Jesus has done, therefore, the sinner who believes in Jesus, who was formerly at war with God, is now at peace with God. And thus Paul writes in Romans 1, 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, justification requires a whole speech by itself. But let me briefly explain it as we close. Justification is God's act as judge of declaring men righteous before him. If you stand before a judge, the judge has two possible verdicts he can make. He can say either you are righteous or you are guilty. If you are righteous, if God declares you righteous, he says that you are in harmony with God's standard, which is God's law. Therefore, justification is God's declaration that a man or a woman who believes in Jesus is in harmony with God's law. But how can God declare someone to be in harmony with his law if that person is a sinner? He does so on the basis of the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not on the basis of man's own works, because man's own works are not righteous. Instead, he gives us someone else's works. He gives us Christ's works. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He imputes that righteousness, or he reckons that righteousness to our account. And that's how we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, not by works, but by faith, through believing in Jesus, we are justified. We have peace with God. We receive the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you have believed in Christ, you are at peace with God. All your sins are forgiven. God has nothing against you. He holds none of your sins against you. He will not punish you for your sins, either today or tomorrow or ever. If God is at peace with you, then you are at peace with him. You live, therefore, in thankful obedience to him. You no longer rebel against him in hatred, but you have repented of your sin. And because you're at peace with God, you're also at peace with your neighbor. 
You're at peace with your fellow man. You're at peace especially with your fellow believer in the church. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in the Christ of Scripture, you have no peace. You might think you have peace, but in reality you have no peace. Your conscience accuses you. God judges you. God's wrath is upon you. And the calling that God has for you is turn from your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and you too shall, with the Roman Christians, have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.